So stand in reverence reading God's Word with that transition, Matthew chapter 7. I could not get the copier to work this morning, so my notes are on my computer. I do not like this, notes on my computer. I do not like technology. Matthew chapter 7. And we're going to do two passages, Matthew 7 and Luke 11. We're finishing a message here on Sermon on the Mount. This message, then one more Sermon on the Mount message. Uh, then we should be, Lord willing, into 2 Corinthians. We're going to do a study of that. Um, since you all remember our study of 1 Corinthians from what, six years ago? So, chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven Give what is good to those who ask him. Therefore, in all these things, whatever you want people to do for you, so do for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now go over to Luke chapter 11. And we'll be going backwards and forwards between Matthew 5 and Luke 11. Parallel passage. Very close to each other. Verse 5. And which of you has a friend and will go to him at midnight and say to him, this is Luke eleven five. Which of you has a friend and will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot rise up and give you anything. That sounds pretty legitimate, doesn't it? Verse 8, And I tell you, even though he will not arise and give, any, give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will give up, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. But what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if his son asks him for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Will we pray over this text with me? We are delighted to gather. This is sacred and holy. Would you empty us of the distractions? Would you set our hearts towards you? Would you give us energy for the Word of God? Holy Spirit, will you do the work, this good work, this good gift? You are our gift. You have come to us, those of us in Christ. You are here to bring light to this text. You're here to help us take this text and apply it to our life. Let it change us, transform us. Let it help us as we go about our business of discipling 
our children, our neighbors, our co-workers, our family, our friends, all those that you give with a, li- with a listening ear. Bless this, and God's people said, amen. You can be seated. So today is Palm Sunday, and if you don't know what Palm Sunday is, it's basically the Sunday before the, resurre- before the cross and resurrection. It's the starting the week, it's the first day of the week, starting uh, that Jesus, this last week, that we often call it his Passion Week. And if you don't know why we call it Palm Sunday, here's the basic gist, as simple as I can say it. That as he was coming into Jerusalem, people were throwing down their clothes and palm branches. That's why I call it Palm Sunday. And as he was marching in to, and as he was coming into Jerusalem, he was riding on a donkey, which was prophesied in the scriptures, okay? And he was coming into Jerusalem, and it was a sign that he would be the king, Right? And so that's the understanding of Palm Sunday. It's a Sunday where Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey as prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9. Just as he said he would come, he comes in the, in the fashion of Solomon. When Solomon comes in to be, be, to be coronated king in 1 Kings 1, he comes in riding on a donkey. It was prophesied that this would happen. So Palm Sunday, that's what's going on. Now, the hard part about Palm Sunday is that the people had expectations of him on that day that did not pan out that week. They thought when he came in on Palm Sunday that he would come in and be a conquering king, not a suffering servant. All they thought, really, was the idea of overthrow Rome, reestablish the worship of the one true God, do all these miracles that you've done, now do the greatest miracle of overthrowing Roman oppression, setting back up the kingdom that God had always promised. That was the thought that was going to happen that day. But my friends, if, he would have been, if that would have been happening that day, he would have been riding in on a horse, on a war horse. But he didn't come in on a war horse. The Bible reveals in Zechariah 9 that he would come in on a donkey. I don't know about you, but a donkey does not seem like an animal fit for war. I don't know much about war. I don't know much about ancient warfare, but I'm sure a donkey was great to transport you know, luggage and supplies and things of that nature, but I'm not so sure it was your greatest war, uh, you know, your greatest kind of artillery to use. But nonetheless, that's what was prophesied would happen. Now, I've had you read those, this text for a reason. I'm going to come back to it. We're still in Sermon on the Mount, but I just want to show you something real quick. Hold your place there and go over to John chapter 12. I just want to set up a couple things. So if you're looking for a title of the message, here's the title of the message. Palm Sunday, prayer, and a personal relationship with God. Palm Sunday, prayer, and a personal relationship with God. First, I just want to point something that for Palm Sunday, there were two different perspectives of what would happen that day, right? If you go over to John chapter 12, John chapter 12, by the way, all four of the gospel writers comment about Palm Sunday, they all say something. They say, now by the way, if you don't see them say all the exact thing, it's not that they're contradicting each other. There's, there's you know, the, uh, ancient, uh, the ancient church fathers would call this one gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They're giving different perspectives, different testimony experiences, different, um, different aspects. But look at verse 12. On the next day, this is John 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of palm trees, went out to meet him, and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They were looking for a king. They were looking someone to establish the kingdom at this point. 
But they didn't understand that this kingdom was really going to be in two phases. The first one was going to be the suffering servant. The next one, when he comes, will be the conquering king. But he conquers the greatest enemy we could ever have, sin, Satan, and death. So they come to save. By the way, that word Hosanna means save now, right now. Please save. Save right now. They thought that he would do more. It wasn't just this idea of thinking about saving us from our sin. They really, for the most part, were thinking he would kind of be more of a political king at this moment. Oh, make no mistakes, he'll be a king. He already is a king, but he'll come and rule and reign in full fashion as king. But at that point, that was not the expectation that Jesus had. But, it, but they had that expectation. Verse 14, And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not, what does it say? Understand. At, his, at the first. But when he was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. So they have two different perspectives. Jesus' perspective and their perspective. The disciples' perspective. The people's perspective. Now there's this idea that some people say is that the very people that welcomed him in on Jerusalem, in Jerusalem that day were the same ones that put him on the cross and more than likely, yes, there were some people that decided to change teams in that moment. But there was also some who were genuine followers who, followers who were just scared. So there was a multitude of reactions. But here's what I can promise. What they were expecting was not delivered. God had an expectation for what would happen on Palm Sunday, right? But everybody else had a different expectation. It wasn't until later that they finally understood that first he was going to come as a as a humble servant, dying the death that we deserve to die, not the conquering king yet. Not the conquering king that would overthrow all government authorities. Not the conquering king that would take rightful possession of the earth. Not the rightful king that would set up the new heaven and new earth and a new Jerusalem. Now that wasn't what was happening yet at that moment. Two different perspectives of Palm Sunday. One was right, right one was wrong. Now, do this. Go over. This will be the last time. Go over and look at Zechariah chapter 9. Now, you just go to the very end of the Old Testament. So don't think you've got to flip through the whole Old Testament. Just go to the very back of the Old Testament, right? Okay, so just go to the very back. And you'll see Zechariah right at the back, right? Right before Malachi, you'll see Zechariah. So Malachi, last one, then just go to the left. Look at Zechariah chapter 9. By the way, this is what I love about God. God's not a liar. He, he does exactly what he said he would do. Um, man is a liar, and, af- and often man misinterprets God's word. Can I say this again? Man often misinterprets God's word. Does he not? So look in verse 9 and 10. This is what was said would happen on Palm Sunday. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That happened, right? Going into Jerusalem, Zion, they go into Jerusalem. They're rejoicing, Hosanna, save now. This is correct. Make a loud shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. That happened. Exactly as Zechariah said it would happen. Behold, your king is coming to you. That happened. King Jesus walked into Jerusalem that day, signifying the kind of king he would be. The first phase of his kingdom would be that that would purchase people back from sin and the fall. All that was made wrong in the garden. 
He is righteous and endowed with salvation. Jesus was 100% righteous before God, perfectly obeyed God. Lowly and mounted on a donkey, that's what he was riding on. Even on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. So he was riding on an, unri- on an unrode donkey, a younger donkey, a colt. By the way, Matthew chronicles this. The other gospel writers aren't as specific, but Matthew actually talks about it being a colt. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his reign will be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The problem is verse 10. Verse 10 is encapsulating of two phases of what we would see in the Messiah. He would be a conquering king, but also he would bring peace to the nations, not just in the borderlands of Israel, but from sea to sea, not just to the closest mountains, but from the ends of the earth. So they didn't see the full spectrum of this. So here's what I understand from Palm Sunday. They had a perspective, an expectation of what Palm Sunday would look like. And really it was just this idea of, we're going to get exactly what we think we should have right now, right? The conquering king overthrows everything, sets up his kingdom. And Jesus had a different perspective. This first phase was going to be one of spiritual conquering. This first phase was going to be the one of offering cleansing and atonement and sacrifice for man's sin. But nonetheless, they were disappointed. It didn't happen exactly. It, they didn't really see in this text that not only would it be a conquering king, but he would be one, be one that speaks Peace to the nations. He would rule from sea to sea. They miss the idea that he's riding on a donkey. They miss the idea of his righteousness. They miss the idea of all the spiritual implications of the text. Oh, yes, he is a conquering king, but he also was a suffering servant. There was these two elements. So Palm Sunday, when I think about it, sometimes I think about this idea of it didn't quite have the perspectives. It didn't, it didn't accomplish all the perspectives that those people had that day when he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, didn't meet all their expectations. Has God, I know this may sound like a weird question, but have you ever felt, I know, I don't like to use, I don't use that word all the time, but have you ever felt like God didn't meet your expectations? Or is that just me, right? I mean, have you ever felt that God did not meet my expectations? I had these expectations of what God would do, and those expectations weren't met. Ever been there? Well, I can kind of see, I can, I can sense that's what's going on. You can even see it in John 12, the disciples recalled later what was going on. By the way, this is what I love about Scripture. Know Scripture, read Scripture, and you can turn back over to Matthew. Know Scripture, love Scripture, memorize Scripture, then know this. At the right time, with the Holy Spirit's help, those Scriptures will come back to you. No matter of scripture is wasted. There was a point when Jesus' disciples could recall everything that had happened. There was a point where they could recall Zechariah chapter 9 and go, okay, now I get it. Now I see. But in the moment, that wasn't their perspective. They had a perspective that was somewhat disappointed by the end of the week. But the resurrection changes everything. Doesn't the resurrection change everything? By the way, that's the reason we worship on Sunday and not Saturday. We worship on Sundays because that's the first day of the week. That's Resurrection Sunday. That's what Christians started to do. We'll talk more about that in the future. But let's go back to Matthew chapter 7. What does that have to do with Matthew 7 and Luke 11, you might ask? What is Palm Sunday? And here it is. 
as disappointed as they were after that Sunday. Because the rest of that week, leading up to the cross, it doesn't look very positive. I mean, even that day on Palm Sunday, in, in, um, in one of the gospel writers' account, Jesus starts talking about his death in John chapter 12. I don't know about you, but if, if the king's riding on a donkey and you're thinking, oh, what, this is it, we're about to do this, and then later on that day, he's like, hey, by the way, I'm going to die. That just, that kind of blows the expectations, I would say. I'm, I don't know about you, but, you know, rulers tend to live, right? I mean, like, if, if, you, if, you, if that was your king and your king's now dead, that doesn't look good for you if you had a lot of hope. So their expectations were dashed. They were sorely disappointed. Now, here's the parallel. If there's one scripture text that I think God's people have been disappointed in, it's this one. For as long as I've known the Lord and read the scriptures and sat down and spent time with people, if there's one text that I think has been maybe the biggest disappointment to God's people, I would say it'd be this text. Matthew chapter 7 and verses 7 through 12 and Luke chapter 11 verses 5 through 13. I'd say this is the biggest disappointment. Look back at it. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. And everyone who asks receive. And he who seeks finds. And him who knocks it will be opened. How many Christians have said, I've done that. I've, I've knocked. I've seeked. I've asked God. He said he would give it. And he hasn't. See the dashed expectations they had that day about what kind of king this would look like when he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, they were a little disappointed with the events that happened over the next six days. And I found many of God's people have experienced a similar perspective, a little disappointed in what they believed this text was promising, a little disappointed just as in some of those people on Palm Sunday who were singing Hosanna when they didn't fully grasp the intent of the author of what the author had to say in Zechariah chapter 9. They lost the intent of Zechariah 9 showing not only a suffering but a conquering king, just like many Christians have looked at this text and have thought that God was going to do something, but God didn't end up doing what they had thought. Two different perspectives on Palm Sunday, two different perspectives on this text. So let's clear up the rubble. Let's clear up what this text is talking about, and maybe, that, maybe we can no longer be disappointed, right? You know, the, the, one of the hardest things in life is to study the scriptures and to kind of go, there's a promise from God, and then to believe that God doesn't deliver on his promises. That's a, that's a, tough, that's a tough one. What I would like to say to you is I believe God's people for a long time have been misinterpreting this text of scripture. Um, I think we, got it, we want to look at it in its greater context. We want to look at it in the light of all of Scripture, and we want to come to an interpretation that is solid and right, that glorifies God, so that we don't have some dashed expectations when we go through our own Passion Week. So look in verse 7 and 8. Here's point, if you're taking notes, here's point number one. And remember, this is a Palm Sunday prayer and a personal relationship. Point number one, if you're, you're writing down points, here's point number one. Jesus expects us to approach him with reverence, but also relationally. Jesus expects us to approach him, to pray to him with reverence, but, with, but also relationally. So when you see in the text, you, you do get this idea, and this is what's interesting. A lot of us would take this text and we would go, 
Jesus wants to give me all that I've ever wanted. Well, if you get to verse 12, you're going to find out that's a bad interpretation. Also, some people take verse 7 and 8 and look at it and go, oh, Jesus is going to give me everything I always wanted. But then you have to go back in chapter 6 to the Lord's Prayer. Does everybody remember that? Chapter 6, verse 9. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. Pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy what? Will be done. Meaning, there's nothing that you're going to ask God to do that's not in his will that he's going to do, right? So we got to make sure that when we're asking and going to the Lord, that we don't ask in a way that's selfish or self-seeking or self-exalting or we're trying to maneuver God. God will never go against his will. But God does want us to ask. The greater thing in verse 7 and 8 is not this idea of whatever you ask God, God's going to do. That would be a misinterpretation of the text. The point of the text, I believe, would be this idea of you can come to him. And you can come to him in relationship. Already in the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. Just so you know, that wasn't a usual thing to do. There's a personal relationship that's happening right here. Ask, seek, knock. I'll give you the illustration, um, a child. What does a child do when a parent, when they need something, right? What's the first thing a child does? They ask, right? And if they can't find you, then what does a child do? They seek you, right? They do it. And let me ask you this. Any of you that have children or have had children, do they get embarrassed to ask or seek you? Does the five-year-old who's hungry and wants a snack go, Ah, oh, man, I, she fed me this morning. I think she's going to be annoyed by me. I, I'm not, I'm not going to ask her seek. No, what does the child do? The child asks, it seeks. Why? Because there's a relationship there. Why? Because it's perfectly natural. Perfectly natural to pray. Perfectly natural to ask. Perfectly natural to seek. So Jesus expects us to approach him in prayer, but with reverence, but also relationally. Ask, seek, knock. But here's what I love. Any of you moms know this. I mean, dads do too, but moms probably know this a little bit more. Okay. Your kid needs something, they ask. Your kid needs something, they seek you. But how many of y'all have ever known a kid that when the door is shut, that they just politely sit down and wait for you to come out? Does that happen? No, what do they do? Mom! Mom! What about the meatloaf? No. They knock. And let me ask you this. Do they feel bad about that? Is their conscience pricked in that moment? I'll even go further. They won't even wait while you're in the bathroom. I mean, they'll sit there and you can almost hear them breathing, right? You'll see them sometimes stick their little chubby fingers underneath, right? <laughs> mom, mom. Why do they do that? Because there's a relationship. There's nothing wrong with, you, you don't think anything's wrong when you have a relationship. So we do see this. Jesus is not telling us, whatever you ask me, I'll do. I will tell you this, when you look at the totality of Scripture, the better we know the word, the better we'll pray God's will. The better we know the word, we'll pray according to his will. A lot of times when we pray things, we're praying things we're just trying to consume on our own lusts. We'll get to that here in a minute in verse 12. Ask, seek, knock. Look in verse 8. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and him who knocks 
it will be open. Does that mean that God will always give you exactly what you want in prayer? No, but I can promise you this. He will always give himself. You know, Garth Brooks, I'm old now, I guess. I know I'm not allowed to say that, but whatever. Garth Brooks. How many of y'all know who Garth Brooks is back in the day, right? Actually, I think he's singing again, right? He came out of retirement. Um, I don't know much about music nowadays. I don't know if he's near as popular as he was back in the day. I have no idea. But I do remember he had this really popular song, right, that said, some of God's greatest gifts are what? Unanswered prayer. Well, Garth Brooks is not a theologian, right? That is inaccurate. God answers every prayer. He may not grant it. He may not give the request, but he answers every prayer. So what does God want from the text in verse 7 and 8? Ask, seek, knock, go to him. He wants you to ask and petition. He, he wants you to realize he's your, he's your father. There's a relationship, and there's nothing wrong. There's nothing to feel shy. Just like a child would never shy back from their seeking, asking, and knocking, the Lord would ask the same of us. You know what we try to do sometimes when we're most struggling with sin? We think, well, I just won't go to him. What a terrible idea. Go to him so that you'll see the bigness of your sin and the gloriousness of what he could offer. In fact, I'll tell you this. You know what sometimes people even do? They'll stop. When they get deep in sin, they'll stop going to church. They'll stop being around God's people. Let me just tell you, what a dumb idea. Why would we ever want to do something like that? Has sin ever got better in our life just because we sat in solitude? So what does God want us to do? Approach him, pray to him. Reverence, with reverence, right? He is holy. That's why when you have the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. You don't go to God in such a presuming way. You don't go to God in this like, well, grace is covered at God. You don't care about my sin. I'm just going to presume on your grace. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking to a person who knows their sin, is convicted by our sin, and goes to a holy God. And God says, ask, seek, knock. If you're struggling in sin, ask, seek, knock. If you're struggling to trust, ask, seek, knock. And just as a child would never be embarrassed to bug their parent, never be embarrassed embarrassed to go before the throne room of grace. Now notice this, it says in verse 9, 10, 11. And here's the next point. So point number one is, Jesus expects us to approach him in prayer with reverence, but also relationally. But number two, Jesus expects us to trust his character in approaching him. Jesus expects us to trust his character when we approach him. Look in verses 9 through 11. Or what man is that? Before I do that, let me me jump down to verse 11, then we'll go back up to verse 8. If you then being evil, who's he speaking to? (laughs) Us, people, right? Disciples, those that are gathered here, right? Sermon on the Mount. That's us, that's me, right? Already, with this evil nature, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those that ask him? So he just kind of says, hey, he is good, you're not. And you being not good can actually give good things to your kid. Why would you ever doubt his character? By the way, here's a side note. Why would God say in the fifth commandment, honor your mother and father, obey them and honor them? Because mothers and fathers can be the easiest to manipulate. Here are the most dangerous things for your soul if you're a youth, if you're a kid, is to disobey and not honor your parents and continue to make, I know, no one's kids ever try to manipulate them. I get it, right? 
And, and here's the thing. That is a dangerous game to play with God because parents can be some of the easiest to manipulate because being evil, they want good things for you. The hard thing is, parents, sometimes the very things we think are good for our kids, we're actually hurting and harming them even more. I can tell you how many times I've seen children not actually do well because the parents protect them even into their latter years. You've got to let your kids suffer the consequences of their sin before a holy God if there's any hope for them. That doesn't mean throw them to the wolves. That does mean you can't protect a 22-year-old like you protect a 5-year-old. Now, here's the thing I want to tell the 22-year-old versus the 5-year-old. 22-year-old, you're called to honor your parents, not manipulate your parents. I think that's one of the hardest things is for that 22-year-old not to go. And by the way, I'm, not, I'm just saying this in general. It can be a 33-year-old, a 44-year-old. I've seen 50-year-olds still maneuvering their parents for something. Amen? Oh, me. <laughs> now, look at this. Verse 11. So, your own parents can do you good. Why would you not think God could do this? So, go to verse, uh, verse 9. What man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf of bread, will give him a stone? Just, he's just saying, knock, seek. Ask, and then as you do that, trust my character. There are no unanswered prayers, as our really terrible theologian Garth Brooks said. There are just ungranted prayers. And if God doesn't grant something or give you what you ask, it might be because you're asking out of his will because you're asking it according to your own lust and pride. Or it may be that God has said right now that's not what's best for you. But know this, I am good, my character is good, you can trust me. And no son that asks his, his father for bread is going to give him a stone. If I've got bread to give you, I'm going to take care of you. I'm not going to give what's bad. So he says, what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? That doesn't happen. God's character is good. He's good. We don't have to call every situation life good, but we can say that his character is unchanging no matter what happens. When we had that big storm on Friday. Y'all remember that big storm on Friday? Were, were y'all aware that there was a big storm here on Friday? And that like, you know, the sirens were alarming and all that kind of stuff. What undergirds a person during those moments is this idea of if something bad happens, it's not that God is bad. And it's not that we have to say the situation is good. But nothing changes with how good God is. So he says in verse 10, if he asks him for a fish... Will he give him a snake? Now, you look at some commentators, they'll say, okay, the fish and the snake, you know, what's the deal with that? Well, it, it, it's kind of this idea of preparation, right? So, obviously, you know the difference between, you know, a piece of bread and a stone. But yet, some commentators would say, uh, you know, some, some bread can look like a stone. I don't know. Maybe it has a lot of mold. But this person who says a fish and a snake, what is that? Well, when you, when you cook a fish and you cook a snake, there is a way that you actually could make them look maybe similar with a certain kind of preparation. We're not talking about just a raw fish and a raw steak, potentially. But in the law of Moses, a snake was something unclean. You wouldn't eat a snake. So the idea he's getting to is this idea that if a, if a son asks for a fish, his father's not going to give him a snake. He's not going to do that. Now do this. Hold your place and go back over to Luke chapter 11. He even goes a little bit further. Luke records something a little bit different. Not different, but in addition. He says this, verse 12. Or if his son asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? Right? A good, a good parent doesn't do that. 
Good parent doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to give you everything that you want, but it does mean we can always trust his character as we seek, as we ask, as we knock. And he wants us to seek, ask, and knock. By the way, um, I did some image searching. Don't do this right now. You'll be distracted, but maybe later. I, I, had, I had read one commentator that said, um, well, a scorpion and egg, a scorpion could, you know, when it's asleep, looks like an egg. I was like, really? I've never known that. So I Googled as much as I could find. I could not find a scorpion that was asleep that balled up and looked like an egg. Sorry, not going to happen. But I did discover this. There are some scorpions that, um, just so you understand, when a scorpion has their children, the children live on the back of the scorpions for a time period, and, it's, and they're all white. And so if you look at a scorpion who has all those kids on its back, it, you, you could somewhat see, oh, okay, I can see an egg right there, right? I can see maybe there would be some kind of, you know, so... That's all I have for you. Now your mind is going, you just want to, I know you just want to Google it right now. I get it. But he says this, if a son asks for egg, we give a scorpion? No, he's not going to do that. God will never give you what's bad. He'll always give you what's right. And by the way, this is why I love the cross. The cross is our justification. So um, in the coming days, we already heard of some people that have already, I mean, wasn't this past week rough? I mean, with what happened in Nashville and what happened with the tornadoes coming through Little Rock, coming through Arkansas. I mean, terrible, horrible things. And I can't call any of those things good. But in the midst of those, we can still say God is good. And here's why. Because the cross is our justification. That's our justification. So we can go to him. We can pray to him. We can relationally go to him because his character is good. I, I I'll tell you this. Here's why we sometimes stop praying. Because we forgot that he's good. We really have. We get this idea of, well, Jesus, I asked, I seek, I knock, you didn't give to me. We just didn't understand his character. If we understand his character, we'll continue to go to seek, to knock, to ask. If we understand his character, we'll go to him with a holy reverence and awe of who he is. Now, here's point number three. So point number one is this. Jesus expects us to approach him in prayer with reverence, but also relationally. Jesus expects us to trust his character, especially his goodness when we approach him. Then ultimately, the good that God gives us is himself. Now go back over to Luke chapter 11. That's why you got to take these two passages together. Ultimately, the good that God gives us is himself. Let me ask you, does, does God already know our thoughts before we form them? Does he? Does he already know our prayers before we pray them? Does he not, even with the Holy Spirit, help us to pray as we ought? So then why pray? Yeah, we need it. We need it. He tells us to. We need it. Prayer, prayer changes us. Prayer's a good thing. Take a look at chapter 11 and verse 13. It says this. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your heavenly Father give thee, what does it say? The Holy Spirit to those that ask. So the ultimate good, now there's lots of good that God gives, so I don't want to limit it. But if we're talking like exegetically in context, taking both parallel passages, I would say this. The ultimate good that God gives is himself, the Holy Spirit. And what do we see with the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is what God has promised to us as a result of the death, burial, resurrection. The Holy Spirit is, is what empowers us to love God. The Holy Spirit is what helps us live for Him. The fruit of the what? Spirit, love, joy, peace, 
long-suffering, goodness, faithfulness. It's the Holy Spirit. This is what's good. So we can go to him freely. We can trust him freely. We can trust he's good freely. He's even given us a deposit on something, and that's called the Holy Spirit to know this. So in a couple weeks, um, uh, they, what, somewhere in May, I can't remember the date, but we, we have a mission trip that we're going on. But last week, George, our fearless leader for our mission trip, had said there's a certain deposit date. What's the deposit date, George? I can't remember. It's in May, right? M- May 21st. And what a deposit, when someone puts down a deposit, that deposit is there to basically go, I'm serious about what's going on. So the trip leader, George, can know, okay, as I'm making accommodations, if this person puts down the deposit for the mission trip, more than likely they're going. This deposit is George's kind of reference to go, okay, okay, this is happening. This person's going to be here. The deposit that God is here and has given himself is the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if I go away, what will he do? He'll send the Holy Spirit. So what's the good? The ultimate good here is that God has said, I'll give you of myself. So ask, seek, knock, trust my character, and know that in every bit of this, I will give myself. And what happens when God gives himself? What happens when the Holy Spirit is overtaking our life? Well, it results in obedience to God. Go back over to Matthew chapter 5. It results in obedience to God. Matthew chapter 5. I'm sorry. Matthew chapter 7. We already did chapter 5. But we may look at it again. If God's good, we will. Verse 12. Therefore, in all these things, whatever you want people to do for you, so do for them For this is the, what does it say? Okay. So here's point number four. Point number one is this. Jesus expects us to approach him with reverence, but also relationally. Jesus expects us to trust his character in approaching him. The ultimate good that God gives us is himself, the Holy Spirit. Number four, evidence of this good gift is obedience to the scriptures. Now notice in chapter 7, verse 12, he says, Therefore, in all these things, whatever you want people to do for you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So when you look in the Old Testament and you see what God has said in the law and the prophets, you see what God has said in the Ten Commandments, into his, uh, to his moral law. When you've seen what God has said, uh, sometimes you see the negative side, but also you see the positive side, right? So we're not supposed to murder, but we are supposed to love and reconcile, right? So whenever you see a negative command, there's also a positive command. Now, what's interesting is, if you'll turn back over to chapter 5, I just want to show you something. Remember when we looked at all this? Remember, if you look in chapter 5, verse 21 through 26, you remember when it talks about anger, right? And, it, and, and he's basically correcting their false traditions of their elders, what they had said about the heart of murder. Don't we see also the positive? Instead of having the murderous heart, look in verse 23, before you present your uh, gift on the altar. Remember your brother has something against you. Leave your gift. Go first be reconciled to your brother. Verse 25. Make friends quickly. What is that? That's the There's a negative command, but also a positive command, right? It's okay, it's not about you. It's about the glory of God and the good of the other brother. So go. Like, let's satisfy this anger. You look down in verse 27 when it talks about lust. It talks about where he corrects their idea that they thought 
Adultery was only something you physically did. And he says, ah, don't forget, there is, the, there is the commandment not to covet. And if you've lusted after one, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So there's the negative, but then there's the positive. Let's do something about that. Cut off the right hand, pluck out the right eye. Let's do, let's do radical amputation so we don't go into this. Keep looking. He goes even further. He, um, if you look down, for instance, look down at verse 38. You said eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Remember, it was a, mis, it was a misinterpretation of the civil law that you could take the civil law and use it personally and get personal, um, personal revenge on people. And he said, no, do not resist. If one slaps you on the right cheek, do what? Turn the other. One wants to take your tunic and sue you, give him your garment. One who wants you to go a mile, go two. If one who asks of you, let him borrow. What am I telling you? When you go to verse 12, take a look at it. Therefore, all these things whatsoever you want people to do for you, so do for them for this is the law and the prophet. So God expects us to approach him with reverence, but also relationally. God expects us to trust his character. The ultimate good is God. And the evidence of this good gift is obedience to what God has told us to do. And that obedience looks like we obey not only God's Ten Commandments, but we can also do what we even see in the text is we can obey positively. We can actually do good to others. Look in verse 12. How in the world can someone, if you want people to do for you, do so for them? For this is the law and the prophets. When you look through the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament is about two major concepts. Love God and what? Love others. Everything is about that. So this text in verse 12 has given us a template for how do we actually, how does this actually look in our life? Prayer and uh, relationship with God. God will help us to actually obey him. What does the golden rule look like? The golden rule is not this, I'm going to do this for you just so you can do it for me. The golden rule is actually attached to this idea of for the glory of God, I'm going to do this. Now, when you look at the text, you may, we may miss it because look in verse 12. Therefore, in all things whatsoever you want people to do for you, do so for them, for this is the law and the prophets. Don't think this is a selfish kind of thing. Like, well, I'm just going to do well for you because you're going to do well for me. If you did, then you haven't read the Old Testament. The, the whole motivation for every bit of obedience to say no to sin and yes to God is that we would glorify and bring pleasure to God. And the ability to do that is actually the Holy Spirit living in us. When we get the Holy Spirit, we get a new life, a transformed life, and a transformed nature. Now let me pull back to Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, Jesus was riding in on a donkey. And what kind of king was he going to be at that moment? A humble king, a servant king, a king that it wasn't about him. It was about the glory of God, fulfilling God's will, and dying for man's sin. Now, what does it look like for us? Palm Sunday, when we have a right perspective on Palm Sunday, when we have a right perspective of ask, seek, knock, when we have a right perspective of God's character, when we have a right perspective of what God has given us in himself, here's what we do. We start living a life that it's not it's not about me, but it's really about how can I serve and do for you? It's not about exalting myself. It's about exalting God. And that's the basis of all the law and the prophets. That's the basis of the Old Testament. It's the glory of God and the good of others. What did they miss on Palm Sunday? They only thought about their good. And what was Jesus thinking about the whole time on Palm Sunday? About the glory of God and the good of others. So, this text helps us to 
have a, uh, the right perspective on who the one true God is. Now I'll end with this. Um, you probably heard this said quite a bit right now. This idea of, you know, by the way, if you, if you go see just about any counselor in our land, um, more than likely the counselor is going to tell you something like, well, the people you're dealing with in life, they're all just narcissists, right? That's like the buzzword right now. Everybody's a narcissist, right? Um, and you might be wondering this morning, am I a narcissist? Yes. <laughs> but I, I'd actually tell you that that word narcissist is not a scientific word. It's actually something taken from folklore, mythology. There was a guy named Narcissus, right? And Narcissus loved himself so much that he would stare at himself in the water, right? And he stared at himself in the water because he loved himself so much that eventually he drowned because he kept staring at himself in the water. So what is narcissism? It's not a psychological complex. It's called sin. It's called pride. It's called selfishness. It's called self-exaltation. It's called a lack of humility. So at heart, without Christ, yeah, we're all narcissists, but really I would say we're prideful, self-exalted sinners who are bucking our chests and shaking our fists against the God of heaven. And in Christ, we're different. And in Christ, God, God has called us to live a life of humility, a life that it's not about our glory, it's about God's glory. When it's not about our glory and God's glory, we know what to ask. We know what to seek. We know what to knock. If we get a no, we can still celebrate his goodness. And, we have, and when we know this, we are unashamed to keep going before his presence. When we know that God has given us the Holy Spirit as his good gift to his children, we no longer think we're bothering him. We actually understand that he's delighted that we would actually come to him. And when we have this, we live in verse 12 in a different way. We don't live life about exalting ourselves. We live life about exalting the glory of God and the good of others. And what does that look like in our life? I can say pretty easily. Do we lie to people? Do we, uh, do we lie to people? Do we murder people in our hearts? Do we manipulate people? Like You, you can look at the, the Ten Commandments and know really easy what does my love for others look like? So he says, whatever you want people to do for you, do for them, for this is the law and the prophets. So they missed it. They missed it on Palm Sunday. They didn't quite get it, but there would be a day they would get it, right? Remember on Pentecost? Y'all remember what happened and what came on Pentecost? The Holy Spirit. Forty days before that, you know what they got? A resurrected Lord. And you and I have both those things. We can already celebrate next week, even today. And we can already celebrate for those of you in Christ that you have the Holy Spirit today. So let's seek Him. Let's knock. Let's ask. Let's trust. Let's know that God has given you something good. I don't care what's going on in our life. I do care. Whatever bad thing's going on in our life right now, I promise you this. Nothing will separate you from the what of Christ love of Christ. So we may not be okay, but we're okay. I can't promise you how the rest of the week's going to end or the rest of the day or the next month. I can't promise you what's going to happen, but I can promise you this. He has given us something and that something is good and he has given it to us through the Son and has put it in our hearts today by the Holy Spirit and you and I can live a life that doesn't exalt ourselves but exalts God. Would you stand with me? Let's pray over this. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we are so thankful.
so we can seek and knock and ask. Sometimes, I, I, I mean, even for my own soul, I think for our own life, we are so autonomous that we won't even seek, knock, and ask. Sometimes we doubt what you're like so much that we wouldn't even do it because we don't think that you're good. I pity that person today. They might not be able to do that because they're not in Christ. You can't if you're not in Christ. So God, if there's someone here who has never bowed the knee, never trusted Jesus, never, never received the promise of the Holy Spirit upon salvation, would today be their day? They're missing out on good. They're missing out on the ability to knock on the door. Would you help them? They're missing out on a life of humility. God, be with that person who's not in Christ. All their life, their life is just, is just, is just riddled with self-exaltation and doing what's best for me. God, they need you. They need not only the forgiveness of their sin, but they lead a real life right now. God, deliver them from this puny, pathetic, weak idea of living your best life as living for your own self. God, save them. Deliver them. Give them something good, which is you. And for the rest of us, let us reject and deny the lies that are told about this text. And let us embrace you. Let us this week renew afresh the work of the cross, renew afresh the work of the resurrection, and renew afresh the goodness of God in us. Because you are our God. And we are your people and we're in covenant together.